Section 36 of Passages from the Life of a Philosopher. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones in Benita Springs, Florida. Passages from the Life of a Philosopher by Charles Babbage. Section 36 the author's further contributions to human knowledge part one of glaciers much has been written upon the subject of glaciers the view which i took of the question on my first acquaintance with them still seems to me to afford a sufficient explanation of the phenomena it is probable that i may have been anticipated in it by saussure and others but having no time to inquire into its history, I shall give a very brief statement of those views. The greater part of the material which ultimately constitutes a glacier arises from the rain falling and the snow deposited in the higher portions of mountain ranges, which naturally first fill up the ravines and valleys and rest on the tops of the mountains, covering them to various depths. The chief facts to be explained are, first, the causes of the descent of those glaciers into the plains, second, the causes of the transformation of the opaque consolidated snow at the sources of the glacier into pure transparent ice at its termination. The glaciers, usually lying in valleys having a steep descent, gravity must obviously have a powerful influence, but its action is considerably increased by another cause. The heat of the earth, and that derived from the friction of the glacier and its broken fragments against the rock on which it rests, as well as from the friction of its own fragments, slowly melts the ice, and thus diminishing the amount of its support, the ice above cracks and falls down upon the earth, again to be melted and again to be broken. But as the ice is upon an inclined plane, the pressure from above on the upper side of the fragment will be greater than that on the lower. Consequently, at every fall, the fallen mass will descend by a very small quantity further into the valley. Another consequence of the melting of the lower part of the center of the glacier will be that the center will advance faster than the sides, and its termination will form a curve convex toward the valley. The above was, I believe, the common explanation of the formation of glaciers. The following part explains my own views. Of the causes of the transformation of condensed snow into transparent ice. It is a well-known fact that water, rapidly frozen, retains all the air it held in solution and is opaque. It is also known that water freezing very slowly is transparent. Whenever, by the melting of the lower portion of any part of a glacier, a piece of it cracks and falls to a lower level, the friction of the broken sides will produce heat and melt a small portion of water. This water, trickling down very slowly, will form a thin layer on the broken surface, and a portion will be retained in the narrowest part of the crack. But since the temperature of a glacier is very near the freezing point, that water will freeze very slowly. It will therefore become transparent ice, and will, as it were, solder together the two adjacent surfaces 
by a thin layer of transparent ice. But the transparent ice is much stronger and more difficult to break than opaque ice. Consequently, the next time the soldered fragments are again broken, they will not break in the strongest part, which is the transparent ice, but the next fracture will occur in the opaque ice as it was at first. Thus, by the continued breaking and falling downward of the fragments of the glacier, as it proceeds down the valley, a series of vertical, rudely parallel veins of transparent ice will be formed. As these masses descend the valley, fresh vertical layers of transparent ice will be interposed between those already existing until the whole takes that beautiful transparent cerulean tint which we so frequently see at the lower termination of a glacier. Another effect of this vertical fracture at the surfaces of least resistance will be alternate vertical layers of opaque and transparent ice shading into each other. This would, in some of its stages, give a kind of ribboned appearance to the ice. Probably traces of it would still be exhibited even in the most transparent ice. Speaking roughly, this ribboned structure ought to be closer together than near the piece examined is to the end of the glacier. It ought also to be more apparent towards the center of the glacier than toward the sides. The effect of this progress downward is to produce a very powerful friction between the masses of ice and the earth over which they are pushed, and consequently a continual accession to that stream of water which is found issuing from all glaciers. The result of this continual breaking up is to cause all the water melted by the friction of the blocks of ice which is not retained in the interstices to fall toward the lowest part of the descending valley, and thus increase the stream, and so take away more and more of the support of the central part of the glacier. Hence the advance of the surface of the glacier will be much quicker toward its middle than near the sides. Cracks in glaciers perpendicular. The consequence of these actions is that cracks in the ice will occur generally in planes perpendicular to its surface. The rain which falls upon the glacier, the water produced from its surface by the sun's rays and by the effect of the temperature of the atmosphere, as well as the water produced by the friction of its descending fragments, will penetrate through these cracks and be retained by capillary action on the surfaces, and still more where the distance of the adjacent surfaces is very small. The rest of this unfrozen water will reach the rocky bottom of the glacier and give up some of its heat to the bed over which it passes to be again employed in melting away the lowest support of the glacier ice. Although the temperature of the glacier should differ but by a very small quantity from that of the freezing point of water, yet these films will only freeze the more slowly and therefore become more solid and transparent ice. Their very thinness will enable the air to be more readily extricated by freezing. The question of the regulation of pounded ice, if by that term is meant anything more than welding ice by heat, or of joining its parts by a process analogous to that which is called burning together, two separate portions of a bronze statue has always appeared to me unsatisfactory. Burning Together Bronze The process of burning together is as follows. 
Two portions of a large statue, which have been cast separately, are placed in a trough of sand with their corresponding ends near to each other. A channel is made in the sand, leading through the juncture of the parts to be united. A stream of melted bronze is now allowed to run out from the furnace through the channel between the contiguous ends which it is proposed to unite. The first effect of this is to heat the ends of the two fragments. After the stream of melted metal has continued some time, the ends of these fragments themselves begin to melt. When a small quantity of each is completely melted, the further flow of the melted metal is stopped, and as soon as the pool of melted metal connects, the two ends of the pieces to be united begins to consolidate. The whole is covered up with sand and allowed to cool gradually. When cold, the unnecessary metal is cut away, and the fragments are as perfectly united as if they had been originally cast in one piece. The sudden consolidation, by physical force, of pounded ice or snow, appears to me to arise from the first effect of the pressure producing heat, which melts a small portion into water, and brings the particles of ice or snow nearer to each other. The portion of water thus produced, then having its heat abstracted by the ice, connects the particles of the latter more firmly together by freezing. If two flat surfaces of clear ice had a heated plate of metal put between them, two very thin layers of water would be formed between the ice and the heated plate. If the hot plate were suddenly withdrawn and the two pieces of ice pressed together, they would then be frozen together. This would be equivalent to welding. In all these cases, the temperature of the ice must be a very little lower than the freezing point. The more nearly it approached that point, the slower the process of freezing would be, and therefore the more transparent the ice thus formed. Ice Frozen in the Exhibition, 1862 In the Exhibition of 1862 there were two different processes by which ice was produced in abundance, even in the heat of the machinery annex in which they were placed. In both, the water was quickly converted into ice, and in both cases the ice was opaque. In one of them, the ice was produced in the shape of long hollow cylinders. These were quite opaque, and were piled up in stacks. The temperature of the place caused the ice to melt slowly. Consequently, the interstices where the cylinders rested upon each other received and retained a small portion of the water which, trickling down, was detained by capillary attraction. Here it was very slowly frozen, and formed at the junction of the cylinders a thin film of transparent ice. This gradually increased as the upper cylinders of the ice melted away, and after several hours' exposure I have seen clear, transparent ice a quarter of an inch thick, where at the commencement there had not been even a trace of translucency. On inquiring of the operator why the original cylinders were opaque, he told me because they were frozen quickly. I then pointed out to him the small portions of transparent ice which I have described and asked him the cause. He immediately said because they had been frozen slowly. It appears to be an axiom derived from his own experience that water quickly frozen is always opaque, and water slowly frozen always transparent.
I pointed out this practical illustration to many of the friends I accompanied in their examination of the machinery of the annex. It would follow from this explanation that glaciers on lofty mountains and in high latitudes may, by their own action, keep the surface of the earth on which they rest at a higher temperature than it would otherwise attain. Book and Parcel Post when my friend, the late General Colby, was preparing the materials and instruments for the intended Irish survey, he generally visited me about once a week to discuss and talk over with me his various plans. We had both of us turned our attention to the post office and had both considered and advocated the question of a uniform rate of postage. The ground of that opinion was that the actual transport of a letter formed but a small item in the expense of transmitting it to its destination, while the heaviest part of the cost arose from the collection and distribution, and was therefore almost independent of the length of the journey. I got some returns of the weight of the Bristol mail-bag for each night during one week, with a view to ascertain the possibility of a more rapid transmission. General Colby arrived at the conclusion that supposing every letter paid sixpence, and that the same number of letters were posted, then the revenue would remain the same. I believe, when an official comparison was subsequently made, it was found that the equivalent sum was fivepence halfpenny. I then devised a means for transmitting letters enclosed in small cylinder, along wires suspended from posts, and from towers, or from church steeples. I made a little model of such an apparatus, and this transmitted notes from my front drawing-room through the house into my workshop, which was in a room above my stables. The date of these experiments I do not exactly recollect, but it was certainly earlier than 1827. Cost of Verification I had also, at a still earlier period, arrived at the remarkable economical principle that one element in the price of every article is the cost of its verification. It arose thus. In 1815 I became possessed of a house in London, and commenced my residence in Devonshire Street, Portland Place, in which I resided until 1827. A kind relative of mine sent up a constant supply of game, but although the game cost nothing, the expense charged for its carriage was so great that it really was more expensive than the butcher's meat. I endeavored to get redress for the constant overcharges, but as the game was transferred from one coach to another, I found it practically impossible to discover where the overcharge arose, and thus to remedy the evil. These efforts, however, led me to the fact that verification, which in this instance constituted a considerable part of the price of the article, must form a portion of its price in every case. Acting upon this, I suggested that if the government were to become, through the means of the post office, parcel carriers, they would derive a greater profit from it than any private trader, because the whole price of verification would be saved by the public. I therefore recommended the enlargement of the duties of the post office by employing it for the conveyance of books and parcels. I mention these facts with no wish to disparage the subsequent exertions of Sir Rowland Hill. 
his devotion to the subject, his unwearied industry, and his long and at last successful efforts to overcome the notorious official friction of that department required all the enduring energy he so constantly bestowed upon the subject. The benefit conferred upon the country by the improvement he introduced is as yet scarcely sufficiently estimated. These principles were established in the economy of manufactures. See first edition, 8th June, 1832, second edition, 22 November, 1832. See chapter on the influence of verification on price, page 134, and conveyance of letters, page 273. Submarine Navigation Of this it is not necessary to do more and refer for the detail to the chapter on experience by water and also to the article diving bell in the encyclopedia metropolitana i have only to add my opinion that in open inverted vessels it may be probably be found under certain circumstances of important use difference engine Enough has already been said about that unfortunate discovery in the previous part of this volume. The first and great cause of its discontinuance was the inordinately extravagant demands of the person whom I had employed to construct it for the government. Even this might, perhaps, by great exertions and sacrifices, have been surmounted. There is, however, a limit beyond which human endurance cannot go. If I survive, some few years longer the analytical engine will exist and its works will afterwards be spread over the world if it is the will of that being who gave me the endowments which led to that discovery that i should not survive to complete my work i bow to that decision with intense gratitude for those gifts conscious that through life i have never hesitated to make the severest sacrifices of fortune and even of feelings, in order to accomplish my imagined mission. The great principles on which the analytical engine rests have been examined, admitted, recorded, and demonstrated. The mechanism itself has now been reduced to unexpected simplicity. Half a century may probably elapse before anyone without those aids which I leave behind me will attempt so unpromising a task. If, unwarned by my example, any man shall undertake and shall succeed in really constructing an engine embodying in itself the whole of the executive department of mathematical analysis upon different principles or by simpler mechanical means i have no fear of leaving my reputation in his charge for he alone will be fully able to appreciate the nature of my efforts and the value of their results explanation of the cause of magnetic and electric rotations in 1824, Arago published his experiments on the magnetism manifested by various substances during rotation. I was much struck with the announcement, and immediately set up some apparatus in my own workshop in order to witness the facts thus announced. My friend Herschel, who assisted at some of the earliest experiments, joined with me in repeating and varying those of Arago. The results were given in a joint paper on that subject, published 
in the transaction of the Royal Society in 1825. I had previously made some magnetic experiments on a large magnet which would, under peculiar management, sustain about thirty-two and a half pounds. It was necessary to commence with a weight of about twenty-eight pounds, and then to add at successive intervals additional weights, but each less and less than the former. ON ELECTRIC ROTATIONS this led me to an explanation of the cause of those rotations which i still venture to think is the true cause although it is not so recognized by english philosophers the history is a curious one and whether the cause which i assigned is right or wrong the train of thought by which i was led to it is valuable as an illustration of the mode in which the human mind works in its progress towards new discoveries the first experiment showing that the weight suspended might be increased at successive intervals of time, was stated in most treatises on magnetism. But the visible fact impressed strongly on my mind the conclusion that the production and discharge of magnetism is not instantaneous, but requires time for its complete action. It appeared, therefore, to me that this principle was sufficient for the explanation of the rotations observed by Arago. In the following year, it occurred to me that electricity possessed the same property, namely that of requiring time for its communication. I then instituted a new series of experiments, and succeeded, as I had anticipated, in producing electric rotations. But a new fact now presented itself. In certain cases, the electric needle moved back in the contrary direction to that indicated by the influences to which it was subjected. Whenever this occurred, the retrograde motion was always very slow. After eliminating successively, by experiment, every cause which I could imagine, the fact remained was that in certain cases there occurred a motion in the direction opposite to that which was expected but whenever such a motion occurred it was always very slow upon further reflection i conjectured that it might arise from the screen interposed between the electric and the needle itself becoming electrified possibly in the opposite direction new experiments confirmed this view and proved that the original cause was sufficient for the production of all the observed effects these experiments and their explanation were printed in the Phil Trans, 1826, but they met with so little acceptance in England that I had ceased to contend for them against more popular doctrines, and was too deeply occupied with other inquiries to enter on their defense. Several years after, during a visit to Berlin, taking a morning walk with Mitscherlich, I asked what explanation he adopted of the magnetic rotations of Arago. He instantly replied, There can be no doubt that yours is the true one. It will be a curious circumstance in the history of science if an erroneous explanation of new and singular experiments in one department should have led to the prevision of another similar set of facts in a different department and even to the explanation of new facts at first apparently contradicting it. 
Mechanical Notation This also has been described in a former chapter. I look upon it as one of the most important additions I have made to human knowledge. It has placed the construction of machinery in the rank of a demonstrative science. The day will arrive when no school of mechanical drawing will be thought complete without teaching it. Occulting Lights The great object of all my inquiries has ever been to endeavor to ascertain those laws of thought by which man makes discoveries. It was by following out one of the principles which I had arrived at that I was led to the system of occulting numerical lights for distinguishing lighthouses and for night signals at sea, which I published about twelve years ago. The principle I allude to is this. Principle of Invention Whenever we meet with any defect in the means we are contriving for the accomplishing of a given object, that defect should be noted and reserved for future consideration, and inquiry should be made whether that which is a defect as regards the object in view may not become a source of advantage in some totally different subject. I had for a long series of years been watching the progress of electric, magnetic, and other lights of that order with the view of using them for domestic purposes, but their want of uniformity seemed to render them hopeless for that object. Returning from a brilliant exhibition of voltaic light, I thought of applying the above rule. The accidental interruptions might, by breaking the circuit, be made to recur at any required intervals. This remark suggested their adaptation to a system of signals, but it was immediately followed by another, namely, that the interruptions were equally applicable to all lights and might be effected by a simple mechanism. Unexpected Difficulty I then, by means of a small piece of clockwork and an argan lamp, made a numerical system of occultation by which any number might be transmitted to all those within sight of the source of light. Having placed this in a window of my house, I walked down the street to the distance of about 250 yards. On turning around, I perceived the number 32 clearly indicated by its occultations. There was, however, a small defect in the apparatus. After each occultation, there was a kind of semi-occultation. This arose from the arm which carried the shade rebounding from the stop on which it fell. Aware that this defect could easily be remedied, I continued my onward course for about 250 yards more with my back towards the light. On turning around, I was much surprised to observe that the signal 32 was repeatedly, distinctly, without the slightest trace of any semi-occultation or blink. I was very much astonished at this change, and on returning towards my house had the light constantly in view. After advancing a short distance, I thought I perceived a very faint trace of the blink. At thirty or forty paces near, it was clearly visible, and at the halfway point, it was again perfectly distinct. I knew that the remedy was easy, but I was puzzled as to the cause. 
After a little reflection, I concluded that it arose from the circumstance that the small hole through which the light passed was just large enough to be visible at five hundred yards, yet that when that same hole was partially covered by the rebound, there did not remain sufficient light to be seen at the full distance of five hundred yards. Thus prepared, I again applied the principle I had commenced with, and proceeded to examine whether this defect might not be converted into an advantage. Occulting Signals I soon perceived that a lighthouse, whose number was continually repeated with a blink, obscuring just half its light, would be seen without any blink at distances beyond half its range but that at all distances within its half-range that fact would be indicated by a blink. Thus with two blinks, properly adjusted, the distance of a vessel from a first-class light would be distinguished from twenty to thirty miles by occultations indicating its number without any blink. Between ten and twenty miles by an occupation with one blink, and within ten miles by an occultation with two blinks. Another advantage was also suggested by this effect. If the opaque cylinder which intercepts the light consists of two cylinders, A and B, connected together by rods, thus, if the compound cylinder descends to A, and then rise again, there will be a single occultation. If the compound cylinder descend to B, and then rise again, there would be a double occultation. If the compound cylinder descend to C, and then rise again, there would be a triple occultation. Such occultations are very distinct, and are especially applicable to lighthouses. In the year 1851, during the Great Exhibition, the light I have described was exhibited from an upper window of my house in Dorset Street during many weeks. It had not passed unnoticed by foreigners, who frequently reminded me that they had passed my door when I was asleep by writing upon their card the number exhibited by the occulting light and dropping it into my letter-box. About five or six weeks after its first appearance, I received a letter from a friend of mine in the United States expressing great interest about it and inquiring whether its construction was a secret. My answer was that I made no secret of it, and would prepare and send him a short description of it. I then prepared a description, of which I had very few copies printed. I sent twelve of these to the proper authorities of the great maritime countries. Most of them were accompanied by a private note of my own, to some person of influence with whom I happened to be acquainted. One of these was addressed to the present Emperor of the French, then a member of their representative chamber. It was dated the 30th November, 1852. Three days after I read in the newspapers the account of the coup of December 2nd, and smiled at the inopportune time at which my letter had accidentally been forwarded. However, three days after I received from Mr. M. Mocard the prettiest note, saying that he was commended by the Prince President to thank me for the communication, and to assure me that the Prince was as much attached as ever to science, and should always continue to promote its cultivation. End of section 36. The author's further contributions to human knowledge 
Part 1